Don't worry, though. When I was home at the HEB, I did purchase myself a mini Texas waffle iron. I just saw that. I have a large Texas waffle iron, but then they made the mini one. And I was like, yes, I will be putting this in my suitcase. I need to know, how often do you make Texas-shaped waffles? I do it, like, on the weekends pretty often, but I'm... How have you never, like, shared a story of your Texas-shaped waffles before? Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mo Gap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Patreon, we have one. And it would be awesome if you would sign up and support the podcast. So over on our Patreon, we have three levels. We have our $5 level where that gets you a shout out on the podcast and a full length bonus episode every month. If you go up $2 at the $7 level, we have tons of mini creeps. So those are really fun. And then that also gets you a card in the mail with MoGab's famous wax seal and a sticker. And then we have a $10 level that gets you 20% off merch. So and more perks to come. So that would be great if you hop on over to patreon.com slash true crime creepers. The link is also in our show notes in the episode description. We would really appreciate it. So thank you so much. All right. Are you are you ready to hop on into this here episode? Well, I suppose, but I am very tired and I've got a lot of things to do, but yeah, (laughs) yeah, I'm real ready. Great, because this is a long one. (laughs) Yes. I I knew this story was full of twists and turns, but those twists and turns brought this script to 26 pages and... uh, 26 pages? You didn't, you said it was, (laughs) oh, you didn't give me the number, you said it was five pages longer than... Yeah, usually usually we were like 18 pages, maybe 20. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, so it's going to be a longer one, so buckle up. So sign up for your Patreon, everyone, because Kristen's doing that work for free. I did. And I had to get it done two days early because MoGap switcheroo. Yeah, I'm sorry. The- <laughs> I'm basically on a like speaking circuit right now, okay? <laughs> she has a speaking engagement. Her presence is wanted. Actually, it was a huge favor to me because uh, I would have definitely used the next two days to work on this instead of just get it done. And I got it done. So I do have to tell you, when I was introduced this weekend to speak, you know, they like read your little bio. And I did say, you know, speaking for some Delta Gamma things and you're my pledge sister. So I Uh say, I forget how it's worded, but it's like she also in her free time, like host a co-host a true crime podcast with her pledge sister, Kristen. And I, it just feels so funny because we're like sitting here just like shooting the shit and like t-shirts. And I, as they're reading this, I'm like in my high heels, like dressed up, got my badge on, my hair's curled. I've like got my official name tag on. And then I'm talking about like, I mean, I'm like sorority woman 101. You know what I mean? And then I'm like, <laughs> it's just so funny. I was saying, I was like, I so you're bald eagling it. Lives. You're bald eagling it. And then you come yeah. here to trash panda. <laughs> To raccoon, Bald Eagle, to Saturday, Sunday, <laughs> Monday through Friday, nine to five, trash panda, like in the evenings, 100%. It's so funny. It's so funny. Look, I think everybody out there needs a little bald eagle time in their life, needs a little trash panda time in their life. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. 
it just made me laugh because I was like, I know there's people now that follow my Instagram and they think probably that I'm this like true crime. Like, what? And here I am in this like hot pink dress, like with my pearls on. Like, Happy Founders Day. <laughs> I'm like, who is this girl? It's been fun. Who is this girl? That is the mystery. <laughs> the question we've all been trying to answer. Who is MoGab and why is she called that? <laughs> what is a MoGab? Yeah, what is a MoGab? Well, it's kind of like the Godfather. <laughs> God, I miss college. Yeah, MoGab used to have a running joke of every time every time somebody would ask her, what's a MoGab? She would say, you ever seen the Godfather? You ever seen the Godfather? It's kind of like that. <laughs> no explanation. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> it doesn't actually mean anything. <laughs> No, 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 of course not. <laughs> or is there? Oh. Oh. You'll never know. <sighs> what? Look at that little head tilt. Look at that little <laughs> sassy head tilt. Sassy. <laughs> little smug, smuggest face I've ever seen. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P 
P-R-O-S-E.com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Thank you to an article in Toronto Life by Karen Cahoe, the title of which will just tell you the entire story. So I will give that to you at the end. Oh, we're in Canada. Oh, yeah, Toronto. Yeah, we're in Canada. So last last week, we were in England. This time, we're in Canada. I did not have a Canadian expert on with me this time. So why am I here? Just straight up. <laughs> I've been one time. So I'm basically a Canadian expert. I've been for one afternoon. <laughs> also, a book by Jeremy Grimaldi. And again, I uh, just cannot tell you that title. It was the night of November 8th, 2010. 57-year-old Han Pan was woken from his sleep by someone yelling. Before Han could even fully come to, someone grabbed him by the scruff of his neck. He didn't even have time to put on his glasses, and he couldn't even see his assailant very well at all. The man pulled Han out of bed and led him downstairs with a gun pressed into the back of his head. When he reached the bottom of the staircase, he sees his wife, Bik Ha, with another man in a mask, a gun held to her neck. Oh, no. Bic had come home from her weekly line dancing class, and she'd been soaking her feet in a bucket of water wearing her green, silky Winnie the Pooh pajamas when the (gasps) intruders came in. Wait. I love her. I know. I love her, but get new shoes if you're line dancing, and it's hurting that badly. I don't know. My feet hurt constantly, and I have been getting the best shoes. And I'm like, maybe I need to soak my feet a little bit. I mean, that's why I get that deluxe pedicure. (sighs) I never, until these stories, ever thought, ever, that I'd be laying in bed and someone would just come get me. Like, I knew about, like, typically your assailant being someone you knew. But the last couple episodes, other than last week's, there's been, like, you know, the babysitter one and this. Like, it's been random people breaking in. I guess I shouldn't say that. We may know these people. We're we're 30 seconds in. <laughs> but I'm stressed because now it's like way more in my mind. And I used to never worry about that. Okay. Well, knowing that, I will try to keep the home invasions away for a little while. But there's just something. I feel like that's more of a worry for me. Well, there's definitely something about a home invasion story because your home is your safe space. And I, I feel like I still feel safe in my home. There are nights where I get scared, but I generally feel safe in my home. But I imagine like the first time that that safe space is violated, like you can't mm-hmm. ever get that back. Like it would never feel safe again, you know? Right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, that's when my cousin, you know, when our house got broken, she like moved, you know? I mean, yeah. Like- yeah. Mm. Bick's feet were still in the bucket when Han came down the stairs and saw her with this intruder. Frightened, they communicated in Cantonese. Neither could figure out how these intruders had managed to get into the house. One of the intruders yelled at them to shut up and then asked them where the money is. Han was slightly relieved. They wanted money. This was good. Maybe if they gave them whatever money they had, they would leave. But... The problem was that they'd been robbed years ago when they lived in a different house in a rougher neighborhood. So now they didn't keep a lot of money in the house. Bick told them that she had $60 in her pants upstairs, but that they could take whatever they wanted. She had many possessions that were worth money. One of the men yelled at her, calling her a liar. And that's when one of them hit Han in the back of the head. And his head just started gushing blood. (gasps) 
and the men get Han and Bic up and they lead them down to the basement. And Bic starts to plead with them not to hurt their daughter, who was 24 at this Mm. point, Jennifer, who was also in the house. They probably didn't know that, Han. Oh, that was Bic. I know. I was thinking kind of the same thing. They made them sit on a couch in the basement and they put a blanket over their heads and then they (sighs) fired. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I I know. It's like it's it's the stories where it happens really like in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. But I'm stressed because there's like someone in the house. I don't know. I know they're still in the house. And yeah. Han was hit first. A bullet went into his face near the inside corner of his right eye. A second bullet hits him in the shoulder. And then it was Bic's turn. She was hit in the base of the neck and through her right shoulder, and then a close-range shot in her head. (sighs) And that was the fatal shot for her. But Han managed to regain consciousness. What? Yes. He sees Bic on the floor, lifeless, and he crawls to her. He's in pain. He has blood dripping from all of his wounds. He calls her name, but there's no response. And that's how their 30-year marriage ended. (gasps) Han howled in agony. He managed to make his way upstairs. He gets to the front door. He gets through the front door. where are the intruders? They've left while Han was unconscious. Oh, so he's like woken up now and they're gone. Yes. But he has no idea how long. And I don't think he was unconscious for more than a couple of minutes. It wasn't like But he was shot in the head, too. In the face. Yeah. The face. And surely those gunshots woke up their daughter. Yeah, he gets to the front door and then he collapses in front of a neighbor. (sighs) Upstairs, their 24-year-old daughter, Jennifer, is tied to the banister. By chance, she happened to have her phone stuck in the band of her yoga pants and she managed to get to it and call 911. The call is frenzied. She's telling the operator that some people broke in and stole all their money. She says she heard shots, but she was tied up upstairs. She says she had her hands tied behind her back, but her cell phone was in her pocket, which she was actually, like I said, in the waistband of her yoga pants. And she tells the operator that she's unharmed, but she's worried about her parents. Police are sent to the house right away. They're at 238 Helen Avenue in Markham, Ontario. They see two men in the driveway. One was the neighbor, Peter Chung, and the other was Han Pan, just drenched in blood. Han tried to communicate with them in broken English. But he finally makes his hand into the shape of a gun, and the police understand what has happened here. I'm sorry. Is he just, like, out in the driveway and his face is shot? Yes. Like, what does that look like? Like, I think uh. the bullet just, like, went in here. I don't think it's, like, blown off. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oof. York Regional Constable Mason Baines was first on the scene, and he could hear the young woman upstairs calling out, Jennifer. She told him she was tied up but unharmed but worried about her mom. Two other officers join Baines as they walk the house, and they note that everything in the house seems to be exactly where it should be. Usually in home invasions, the houses are just completely ransacked, but nothing appeared to be taken. Nothing appeared to even be out of place. It's weird. The officers cleared the rest of the bottom of the house. They found Bick's body in the basement and then Mm. went upstairs. Jennifer told them that she wasn't sure if all the assailants were gone. And so the officers kept their pistols out and went and cleared all of the bedrooms upstairs. They found the master bedroom completely ransacked. 
The mattress was flipped. The drawers had all been taken and dumped out. The other rooms all appeared like the rest of the house, in perfect order. It was just the master bedroom that was totally ransacked. They finally get to Jennifer to untie her. She's sitting on the floor with her ankles. Wait, they, they looked at all the rooms before they untied her? Yes, they had to clear the house to make sure nobody else was there before they could render aid to her. I just kind of feel like they'd get her out in the front yard and then do that in case there was someone still in there. No, because then, like, if they were doing that, then they're not finding, you know, they have to clear the house and make sure, like, everybody's out before because they had to untie her and all of that stuff. And they actually ended up explaining that to her in her first interview because she was kind of thinking the same way. She was like, they just left me there for, like, quite some time while they cleared the house. And, And the officer interviewing her is like, you understand why they had to do that, though, right? And she's well, like, I'm glad you explain it because I didn't. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I only have an answer because I listened to that <laughs> parts of that interview. So Jennifer is sitting on the floor with her ankles to one side and her wrists are bound behind her with a boot lace, but she's able to move away from the banister about eight inches. Officer Derek gets a pair of scissors from Jennifer's bedroom and cuts the boot laces. She is clearly in a complete panic. And Derek tries to soothe her. They bring her down to the waiting paramedics who are already loading Han onto a stretcher and beginning to work on him. Han and Jennifer are both taken to the hospital in separate ambulances. On the way, Officer Derek accompanies Jennifer in her ambulance and she asks him about her mother. Oh, no. And that's when she discovers that her mom is dead. When he asks Jennifer what she can remember from the night, she says, Not much. She tells him there were three men. One was smaller than the rest, and another one had dreadlocks. At the hospital, most people are shocked that Han survived this attack. Yep, me too. Yes, they immediately get to work saving his life. Jennifer is given an anti-anxiety medication, and she's seen by crisis workers at the hospital at 11.15 p.m. At 1.31 a.m., Jennifer goes with Officer Derek to the police station to give a statement, and her phone is seized. God, they don't even let her, like, sleep. Oh. I know. And I'm like, okay, a part of me understands that, like, you have to get the statement while it's fresh okay. and, like, right. as soon as possible. But this interview... But, like, can't they do that in there, too? Like, you have to take her out of the hospital into a police station? Like, she can't even be... Ugh, that's I true. Know. I don't know why they had to take her out. And, yeah, that's true. Because she left at 1.31. And her phone was seized at part of what is now a murder investigation. But the first interview with her doesn't start until 2.45 a.m. on Mm. November 9th. Uh. And it lasts two hours. (laughs) I'm like, I would be so tired. Yeah. And I mean, all the other, like, I'm tired in general, much less. Just like, but like, just completely mentally, physically, yeah, just exhausted. Detective Slade interviews her. And he knows that she's just lost her mother and possibly her father to a bunch of armed men. So he tries to go as easy as possible with her. Because right now, she's all they got. She's their only, like, witness to this whole thing. So she takes him through the events of the night. That the men had entered the house looking for money. That she was tied to the banister. And they'd taken her parents to the basement and shot them. There was some confusion about how she was able to get to her phone with her hands tied behind her back. So two days after this first interview... Jennifer returned to show them how she had, like, contorted her body to get to her phone, which was just a flip phone, out of the waistband to make the call. That doesn't seem that hard to me. 
Yeah, it doesn't really seem that hard, to, especially when you've got like eight inches of kind of wiggle room going. And but. a flip phone, like you just got they're not that, it's not like a heavy iPhone, you know, you're yeah. like grabbing that and then it can just like flip up. And then it can flip up, yep. Oh. And you don't have to like do a face, you know, thing or type in a passcode mm-hmm. or anything, you just flip it up and dial 911, yeah. Yeah. Several more things about this crime scene were confusing to investigators. Like Han drove a Lexus and the keys were just right in plain view hanging by the door. So if this were a home invasion, why didn't they steal the Lexus? Also, why didn't they have a crowbar to force their way in? The house had an alarm system, but it seemed like there were no signs of forced entry. Hmm. They didn't seem to have any bags with them to carry whatever they might manage to steal. They didn't even have zip ties to restrain the residents. It seems like they just came, showed up with guns to rob the place, but like had nothing prepared to rob it. And it was the middle of the night, so it's not like they were expecting it to be empty, or maybe they were? No, I don't think they were expecting it to be empty. Yeah, because like you said, middle of the night, they knew people would be there. Unless they thought people were out of town. But the drive, but the Lexus is there. Yeah, and there, and Big Ha also drove a really nice car. I can't remember. I think it was a Mercedes or something. But the biggest question to investigators was this. Like, why would these intruders shoot to kill two of the witnesses? but leave the third witness just completely unharmed. Like, why was Jennifer not touched at all? She cannot have anything to do with this, or I will lose my ever-loving mind. No, of course not. Investigators <gasps> thought Kristen. there was... <laughs> why oh, would she have no. anything? She obviously does not have anything to do with this. That would be too wild. Your, vo- your voice. You just <laughs> gave it away right there. No, I didn't. Well, Maybe did. you think I did. Maybe... That was a throwing you off. No, this is ridiculous. Investigators thought there was more to the Pan family than met the eye. And so they started doing some digging. The Pan family saga began in Vietnam. In the late 1970s to early 80s, Vietnam was facing a huge refugee crisis. Saigon had fallen into North Vietnam control. That's what ended the Vietnam War. And the Socialist Republic of Vietnam was formed. So when this happened, nearly 2 million Vietnamese people fled political, ethnic, racial, or religious persecution. In the early days, refugees were able to get out of the country using their own resources, but the communist government of the North started sealing their borders, putting a stop to that, meaning that the only way out of Vietnam was the South China Sea. So people started fleeing in these rickety boats, risking drowning disease, starvation, or even getting captured by pirates just to get out of Vietnam. The media at the time seemed to forget that these people were like fleeing for their lives and needed protection and instead referred to them as boat people. Oh, no. Yeah, boat people, which really just dehumanized these refugees, an estimated 250,000 of which died at sea. My goodness. I didn't realize that number. I know. The others managed to make it to refugee camps in other Southeast Asian countries, which would then send the refugees all over the world. These refugees came from every social class. You had peasants from the countryside to the more educated people in the city. It was not like one size fits all. All types of people were fleeing. Between 1975 and 1982, an estimated 120,000 of these refugees came to Canada. 
This was Canada's largest humanitarian undertaking to that point. Wow. One of these political refugees in 1979, Hui Han Pan. Han was 26 when he arrived. He knew zero English and had zero dollars. And he arrived in Canada when the country was having its own economic issues. Unemployment was high. Gas prices were high. But Han was determined to make his new life work. He had risked everything. He had gone through all of that getting out of Vietnam. He was going to make it work here in Canada. So he settled in Scarborough, which is a district in Toronto that has been a popular destination for new immigrants since the end of World War II. So it's become one of the most diverse and multicultural areas of Toronto. Still? Still, today, over 70% of the Scarborough population are immigrants. Less than 2% of Canada's population was made up of people of Asian descent. But in Scarborough, there was a really close-knit community of Asians. Most of them were refugees, like Han. Wasn't his neighbor Asian, too, you said? Yes, Peter Chung. Mm -hmm. Peter Chung. Another refugee coming to Canada around the same time as Han was a woman named Bika Luang. She'd come over with her father and other family members, and she'd met Han briefly in Vietnam. But soon the two were reacquainted in Canada, and before long, they were married. How crazy. You, like, know each other in Vietnam, and you're, like, walking down the street in Canada, like, what's up, Han? I know. That's a that's kind of a meet-cute, minus the, like, <laughs> fleeing for your life part. Minus the fleeing for your life part, yes. I, could, I just, it's so far removed from any sort of personal experience I have that saying mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine is just not even, it's not even. Yeah touching the surface of how much I cannot imagine. Things were rough for the couple at first. They were making hardly any money. But the two were both incredibly hardworking. They just had these spirits of determination. They were determined to establish a good life for themselves in Canada, where there was no strict class system and social mobility was actually possible, something that Mm -hmm. hadn't been available to them in Vietnam. Difficult, yes, but possible. It gave them hope that their children could have a really great life there in Canada. In Vietnam, social classes were divided based primarily on education. There were the chosen few, as there are everywhere, you know, but everyone else's lot in life depended on the amount of education that they were able to get. Like knowledge truly did equal power. So the only way upward mobility was possible in Vietnam was through education. They were heavily influenced by China, where one of the most famous sayings about studying is, in the book, there is a lot of food, a house made of gold, and a pretty girl. Basically saying, education will give you everything you could want in life. I've never heard that. I haven't either. But there were limited spots in higher education over there, which meant there was a relentless competition for that education that began when the children were in elementary school. There was no time for playing or social development when there was more learning to do. And that's the environment that Han and Bic had grown up with in Vietnam. That's the mentality that they had, you know, education before anything. Both Han and Bic were lucky to find jobs at this auto parts manufacturer called Magna International. Han worked as a tool and die maker and Bic made car parts. It was really hard work, but they were up for it. In 1986, they had their first child, a girl they named Jennifer. And three Yeah, I'm starting to f- be a little suspicious of her. I'm sure she was fine in 1986, but 
Jennifer never did anything wrong in her whole life. And you'll see how true those words are coming up. Uh-oh. She obviously made a few minor mistakes here and there, you know, similar to the kind of mistakes. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> You've never made a mistake, Mogab. Name it. I'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you thought Cher was in Clueless. <laughs> God, that one will haunt me forever, too. <laughs> and three years later, they had a boy named Felix. They Ooh. made they made a conscious effort to give them English names to help them have an easier time assimilating to their new life in Canada. I do love that Felix was the choice. I love Felix. Yeah, I don't do. know if it's because it just reminds me of like Felix the cat. I don't know, cat. but I love Felix. But they never spoke English at home. Han never really got a good grasp of the language, and the family spoke Vietnamese and Cantonese at home. Han had big dreams for his children's future. He didn't want them to have to work in a car part manufacturing workshops to make a living. He had hopes that one would be a doctor and the other an engineer. So, you know, very specific goals for his kids. Han and Bic were ridiculously good at living on a budget. Frugality ruled their world. And by 2004, they'd saved enough money to buy a nice house on a quiet street. Han drove a Mercedes-Benz. Bic drove a Lexus ES300. That doesn't sound super frugal to me. That's all I'm saying. They were frugal enough that they were able to buy a nice house on a quiet street, a Lexus and a Mercedes, when they worked at an auto parts manufacturing, like on the line at an auto manufacturing part. And I guess at some point- I think a frugal of like not spending it, but yeah. But they valued the nice home and the nice cars. Yeah. You know, like that's what they- wanted. That's what would put them into that social class that they wanted to be in. Mm -hmm. That's what was valued <laughs> to them. They talk like I know them. And they had 200 grand in their savings account. Huh! So, and I didn't put this in my script. I wanted to find a place for it. But also they moved to this nice house in 2004. That This is the house in Markham that they were in during the attacks mm -hmm. because they had been robbed at their house in Scarborough, which was like a rougher area. And so they decided to move to Markham, which was like a much nicer, you know, mm -hmm. higher socioeconomic area of the city. Han and Bic's tough life gave them extremely high expectations for their kids. They expected Jennifer and Felix to work as hard as they had to have a nice life. Han and yeah. Bic wanted to give them the foundation for this life, but they expected Jennifer and Felix to take advantage of the better opportunities than they had. At four years old, they put Jennifer in piano classes, and then at six, they added on figure skating classes, where she trained most days of the week. She excelled in both. She was great at piano. She was great at figure skating, and she loved both activities. She had goals. She was on track to be an Olympic hopeful for the 2010 mm. Winter Olympics in Vancouver until she tore a ligament in her knee and she ended up pulling mm. out of figure skating. She also took swimming and wushu, which is a Chinese martial art that Wikipedia said was also called Kung Fu. They said also oh. known as Kung Fu. And I'm like, well, why aren't we just calling it Kung Fu? But every place called it wushu. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to stick with what they say in case it's not the same. In case Wikipedia has let me down and been well, wrong about something. <laughs> she stopped both swimming and wushu after a while, but kept with the piano and figure skating. 
By the end of elementary school, Jennifer had a trophy case full Wait, of awards. Wait, that was all before elementary school? Yeah, that was she all. She be in ele- the Olympics. No, she was elementary school. I don't know when she, she was still, I'm just oh. saying she was like excelling in, in figure skating. I think she tore that ligament later on, but she was really good at figure skating. I was like, let a fifth grader take out Michelle Kwan and see what happens, but okay. By the end of elementary school, Jennifer had a trophy case full of awards, and she had earned each and every one of those awards. Some nights. But has she ever gotten a ribbon for rodeo art? (laughs) I've gotten a ribbon for art. I don't know if it was rodeo art. (laughs) Yeah, we all have. That's the joke. No. That's not true. That's my one award. <laughs> Remember, we I couldn't think of any award I got. I got an award for this painting that I did. Oh, I hope it was rodeo art. <laughs> it was the view outside my house in California that I lived in. <laughs> Some nights while she was in elementary school, Jennifer wasn't getting home from skating practice until 10 o'clock at night. And then she was up Ugh. doing homework until midnight. And then she'd head to bed. Mm. Jennifer wasn't allowed to do anything that wasn't inherently productive. She could practice her figure skating or practice piano or do schoolwork, but she wasn't allowed to watch TV. She wasn't really given a lot of opportunities to hang out with her friends from school or things like that. On the one sleepover they allowed Jennifer to go to, it was at her friend Cecilia's house. They dropped her off late and they picked her up early in the morning. Mm. She did have cousins her age that she could play with and hang out with, as well as her little brother, Felix, who she loved so much. They really developed this unbreakable bond. Felix didn't seem to be pushed as hard as Jennifer. He was like the second child. He was the boy. Yep. And he said for him, it was always okay for him to be worse than Jennifer. Like, that was fine. So they weren't on him as much. Unfortunately, though, the bar is not on the floor there. (laughs) Right, exactly. This tough love method of parenting has been dubbed tiger parenting in 2011 by this American law professor named Amy Chua. And Han Pan was a textbook tiger dad. This is someone who pushes their children to achieve and who considers success the best measure of parenting. That's why I can't be a parent because I'd be like a I'd be like a tiger in a helicopter like oh, just God, just the two drill worst sergeant. things. So now, you're just. I probably would be a helicopter, but I would be like a drill okay, sergeant so tiger. What I'm hearing is instead of saving for college, you will be saving for therapy. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course I wouldn't save for college. I'd be like, you'll be just fine. I was. <laughs> yeah, because you're just fine. Yeah. Hey. Well, by then, maybe they'll have free college. Who knows? Just go to move move to New Mexico. <laughs> Ew. And I, the, you know what? If they had free college, I'd make them pay me. Just to show them, show you what it's worth. I'll set up like a GoDaddy site for like a student loan, Sammy student loans, make them pay. Oh my god! Yikes! Better everyone hates me. Better get that. Better get that therapy money ready. (laughs) When I was googling what this term meant, tiger parenting, I stumbled upon this article that had this example in it from Amy Chua of her being a tiger mom. Quote. I hauled Lulu's dollhouse to the car and told her I'd donate it to the Salvation Army piece by piece if she didn't have the little white donkey perfect on the piano by the next day. When Lulu said, I thought you were going to the Salvation Army. Why are you still here? I threatened her with no lunch, no dinner, no Christmas or Hanukkah presents, 
No birthday parties for two, three, four years. When she still kept playing it wrong, I told her she was purposely working herself into a frenzy because she was secretly afraid she couldn't do it. I told her to stop being lazy, cowardly, self-indulgent, and pathetic. You get Christmas and Hanukkah presents? Well, I'm she sure was going to get nothing. Not- but- <laughs> 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 I don't think that was fine. So basically saying strict disciplinarians, highly controlling, and very focused on the academic achievements of their children. I relate to all of that. Academic achievements and other activities that they deem acceptable. And these activities are are only activities where you can win awards. So things like piano and figure skating. Team sports would not be as acceptable because you are meant to be part of a team. You're not meant to be singled out and shine. Mm -hmm. They only saw value in the activities where you can win something yourself. Kids aren't allowed TV, computer games, sleepovers. Like, no fun ever. Their basic thought process is, the world is tough, so we need to toughen up our kids. They believe that putting pressure on children from a young age to achieve academically is really good for them. It's not out of a desire to traumatize their kids. That's, that's not what they're trying to do. It's truly out of what they think is best. In the book, Amy Chua says that if parents prioritize schoolwork and encourage their children to engage in activities, it can mold children so that they're more likely to achieve and lead to monumental success. They basically say that like, okay, opponents to this type are like, hello, your child's self-esteem is going to go down the toilet. And their thinking is, well, self-esteem is built on success. successes and, and accomplishments. Yeah. And so if we're pushing them to accomplish these things, then they will feel, then they will get self-esteem from that. But when nothing you ever do is good enough, then you never get that self-esteem. So you play the piano perfectly. You play this thing perfectly on the piano. She's not going to say good job. She's just not going to take away Hanukkah, Christmas, the birthdays for the next two. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a good job. Yeah. You're going to get an, a harder thing to play. And now it's j- mm-hmm. just the next thing. Chua says there are three principal rules. Schoolwork must always come first. Children must always be two years ahead of their classmates in math. They should never be complimented in public. Parents must always take the side of the teacher or coaches above their children, which all parents should do that. Thank you very much. (laughs) An A minus is a bad grade. And children should only be permitted to engage in activities in which they can eventually win medals, which should always be gold. Okay, so we've been talking about this parenting style for a minute now. Mm -hmm. So what... Obviously, Jennifer is responsible here, and it probably has something to do with the way she was brought up is what I'm gathering. You but are – the do? leaps, the jumping to conclusions that well, you're doing no, right No, that's now. not true because we've, we're talking about a lot of background <laughs> here, okay? We've been talking about this family. I was just fascinated by time. this whole thing of um, tiger parenting, and we're going to talk about it for a little bit more. So in return, tiger parents make intense sacrifices for their children. They expect that their children will do what they did, spend the rest of their lives repaying their parents for those sacrifices by obeying them and making them proud. And there's plenty of proof that Asian homes produce adults who have academic, professional, and personal skills that are largely unrivaled. I just watched unrivaled. all of this in the Tiger Woods documentary, Oh, actually. Yeah. About Tiger's mom. Speaking of a real tiger parent, literally. She named her child this- Tiger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, especially in the U.S., because according to the 2000 census, compared to other ethnicities, Asian Americans have the highest rates of college degrees, advanced degrees, and highly skilled occupations like medicine, law, and engineering. 
Their median income is the highest. They make up 5% of Americans, or did in this 2000 census, which obviously was 22 years ago, but they make up 17% of incoming Harvard freshmen. 5% of the population, 17% of incoming Harvard freshmen, and 30% of Harvard medical school students. But there is a downside to tiger parenting. Evidence suggests that a perfectionist parenting style that uses shame and punishment to achieve top-of-the-class grades can actually backfire. This was specifically a study looking at Singapore children that are notoriously overprogrammed. They use the term hothoused. I've never heard that term before, but... Really? Because you live there. I did. Yes, I did live there. And I could definitely see why all of this is true, because I had a lot of students that... Like, they would leave me, then they would go to a couple hours of tutoring. They all played an instrument, you all know. All played some type of activity. And then their parents were like, give me more homework. But all their parents were so wonderful. Like, I, you know, they were great. They always took my side. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because you were also pushing them in a good way. Yeah. This study showed that their kids are more likely to be overly self-critical and later on in life will be more prone to anxiety and depression. So wait, what did hot house mean? Hot house meant like I looked it up. It means to educate a child to a high level at an earlier age than is usual. Mm. So that's why my kids. I know I'm like that doesn't fit. The term doesn't seem to fit. But not to be confused with hot box, just not the same. (laughs) Right. So you're trying to toughen your kids up for a tough world, but you actually might be creating people that have a harder time dealing with the world because they're so afraid of failure. Mm hmm. Or like what social skills are lost when like you're not able to have 100% relationships or hang out. You're only doing like homework and instruments and stuff. Well, uh, you know, anytime your focus is on one thing, the rest of it is going to be like worse. Yeah. If if you're not bringing up a well-rounded child and you're Mm -hmm. neglecting those parts like that social, yeah, aspect, then yeah. Ryan Hong, who authored the study in Singapore, he said, quote, when parents become intrusive in their children's lives, it may signal to the children that what they do is never good enough. As a result, the child may become afraid of making the slightest mistake and will blame themselves for not being perfect. You know, you want parents that are involved in their kids' lives, that know what's going on at their school and with their academics, things like that. But there does seem to be a line that shouldn't be crossed if it's inherently damaging to the child. Now, I I think that Han and Big Pan really were doing the best they could with what they had and what they knew. They genuinely wanted their kids to have a better life than they had. I mean, that's their culture. Yes, exactly. And I just, I don't point that out, out. I don't, I didn't go on that big, long, you know, educational spiel about... It's called a soapbox, sis. It wasn't, but it wasn't a soapbox because a soapbox, like my opinion, this is just like information that is important to this story to understand what's happening and and where everybody's coming from. And I, Mm -hmm. I'm not, I didn't say all of that to judge anybody or to say that one culture is better than another culture or, or anything, but just to show you the context of this family. Mm -hmm. And because I think it's important as we get into Han's person, like specifically Han's parenting style for, you to understand where he's coming from and why he's doing the things that he's doing and why he's pushing Jennifer so hard. And and I think without that context, he just looks like an abusive parent. And I mm-hmm. I don't think that that's what was going on. I think maybe 
I don't know. You can toe the line of what what is abuse here and what is not. Some people might disagree and, and think that it is. And I could understand that too. I I don't really know enough to call it abuse. But anyways, let's get back to the story. So they genuinely wanted their kids to have a better life than they had. And Jennifer really did love piano and figure skating. Piano was something she could really put all of her emotions into. And skating was like an escape for her. But the pressure was so intense on Jennifer that she began to self-harm in an attempt to deal with the stress. By the time Jennifer was about to graduate eighth grade, she had been putting in the work and she expected a reward for the intense amount of effort that she'd been putting in for years. Every time she did well in skating and piano, she got ribbons and trophies to show for all of her hard work. She fully expected to be named valedictorian of the eighth grade, apparently something that they do there, and to get several awards for her academic achievement. But she got none of it. No, no awards, no valedictorian. Who could have beat her? Well, not even a good uh, behavior award. And she started to (gasps) think, what is the point? And apparently you said who beat her? Eighth grade valedictorian at this school was based on more than just academic achievement. It was for the most well-rounded student. And usually those who excelled in team sports tended to get it. So it's just like they're living in Canada. Canada is a different culture and they're putting value on different things than Mm -hmm. the Pan family is putting, you know? Right. Canada, the U.S., we tend to like the team, you know? Yeah, America's sweetheart. Like someone who, you know, you think about the person that's like always winning like home. Co- it's yes. popularity contest isn't a good word, but they have connections. I mean, it's easy. Well, to and, and this overlooked. principal at this school specifically said like somebody that teachers like, somebody that the rest of the kids like. Like it does seem mm-hmm. like a homecoming king kind of thing, not like what you would think of as a valedictorian being top of the class, you know? Yeah, so I wish I would have applied myself because I I was the same way. I always was prepared. I always did my homework, did the project, whatever. But it wasn't like I was going above and beyond to like learn this stuff. Like I just kind of like would show up and was like, I know this, you know, except for that. I'm doing what I have to do to get the grade. I'm not doing what I have to do to learn the material. I just want the grade. Yeah. Except for the time I glued my book shut for the open book test, which we've talked about. But second. We've talked about that. About how I had an open book test and I thought I was really clever. Hey, I want to like I want to rewind to the beginning of this episode when you said, "Name one mistake I've ever made." <laughs> <laughs> it was gluing my book shut for an open book test. Ah, uh, yeah, God, that sucks. But my second piece is, I'm glad I didn't have a tiger parent. But on the flip side, I do wish. Like, I remember coming home from ballet one day and being like, "I don't want to do this anymore," and my mom just said, "Okay." And if she would have pushed back at all and just been like, are you sure? Don't you enjoy it? Aren't you just tired today? Yeah. I probably would have gone on and done ballet like my entire life. Yeah. Like I still think about missing it. And I'm like, there was no like. Discussion. I mean, I was it was just like, quit. okay. Yeah. yeah. It was almost like I could do whatever. And I'm like, I oh. definitely think that there's a fine line. And I think, first of all, it's two non-parents talking about this. Mm-hmm. Right. I okay. think being a parent is probably the hardest thing in the whole world to like be a parent. <laughs> I went on record saying that last week. Yeah, to be a parent and try to not like n- not only just survive your life, but to not like totally screw up your child in some way. It's like there are so many things where you're damned if you do, you da- you're damned if you don't. Like there are studies that say don't be a tiger parent. Then there are studies that say, look, tiger parenting results in kids that are very, very oh, accomplished. And social media now, don't even try it. Right. Look at what you should be doing. 
Right. So, yeah, I fully admit I'm no expert. I just kind of wish I would have been pushed a little bit harder by myself. Also. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Jennifer doesn't get any awards. She doesn't get valedictorian, not even a good behavior award. And she starts to think, what is the point? What's the point of killing myself when all of this effort isn't even going to be acknowledged? Jennifer, it's only eighth grade. You haven't even gotten to the good part yet. (laughs) Well, she was done. She was done with all of that. When she was 14, Jennifer attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School in North Scarborough. In her article in Toronto Life, Karen Ho described the school, which she also attended. She knew Jennifer in high school. And she described it as something of an anomaly for a Catholic school. She said it had the high academic standards and the strict dress code you expect from a Catholic school. But the vibe there was like very bohemian. It was cool to be geeky. There was no such thing as an outsider, an all are welcome kind of place, something you just don't really expect from a Catholic school. It also had a very self-directed learning format than Jennifer was used to. Students made their own schedules and they could complete courses in whatever timeline they wanted. They could complete easier courses faster to spend more time on the courses that they were having trouble with. But students didn't really do that. That was kind of the idea of it. But students would just finish their courses fast and then just hang out, you know. They, the school mm-hmm. ended up actually having to hire, like, a bunch of hall monitors because they just had all these high school kids, you know, walk in the halls all the time. <laughs> this format meant there were a lot of high school students with a lot of free time on their hands. That is terrifying. That is not what you want. Yeah, and Jennifer was not used to having this kind of autonomy. Every minute of her day had been scheduled for her basically since birth. And this newfound freedom came at the exact same time that Jennifer had lost all motivation to continue at the pace that she'd been running at since elementary school. I bet her parents didn't know about that extra free time. I can't even process that. I mean, I was trying to get a 30-minute off-campus lunch, you know? Right. Much less. Yeah, I know. Which was not allowed. No, me either. Jennifer was just no longer willing to put in the massive amount of effort it required to be at the top. Her parents at this point were less focused on her now. They believed they'd established a strong enough foundation with her that they could turn their attention on Felix, who'd had to switch schools because of his low grades because they had been focusing so much on Jennifer. So during the day, Jennifer tended to take advantage of her newfound freedom. She spent most of her day in the music room, the one place that she was really happy. She was excelling at piano, so much so that her teacher at the music conservatory that she attended said she'd only seen people at Jennifer's proficiency level a handful of times in her 40 years of teaching. Let me tell you, hanging out in the band hall, though, that's where the trouble starts. Well, truly. uh, truer words have never been spoken. And this story will show that. Jennifer knew that the second her dad picked her up at three o'clock, it would be back to regularly scheduled programming. It was either piano or skating, then a quick stop at home to drop off any gear or have a quick bite to eat. She wanted to try out for a school sport, but she wasn't allowed to, and she had no time to do it anyway. When her first report card came out, her grades had dropped substantially, from A's to barely passing in every single class except for music and math, both of which she was just naturally good at, didn't really have to try. Jennifer Pan. Jennifer Wait, what's Pan. your name? Yes, Jennifer Pan. Pan. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Pan. Mm-hmm. Girl. Mm-hmm. You're cruising for a bruising. 
Yeah, she knew she could not show her parents that report card. Oh, well, you got to edit it. You got to Photoshop it. They'd finally let up slightly on the tight control they'd always had on her. And she did not want to go back to all of her free time filled with tutors and more expectations. That did not sound good to Jennifer. So she lied. Jennifer got really good at the art of deception. She'd always been good at at the white lies because of the traditional what happens in the family stays in the family code that she'd been Mm -hmm. brought up with. And it would pay off big time here. She got out some old report cards, cut them up, glued them back together, and then photocopied them to create new report cards showing straight A's. I've never done any such thing like that. No, you haven't. (gasps) Carol, if you're listening, you know what I'm referring to. (laughs) Apparently in Canada, colleges only look at grades from your last two years of high school. So she told herself it wasn't a big deal. This was a problem for future Jennifer, not present current Jennifer. She thought she'd have plenty of time to bring her grades up. And in the meantime, she couldn't bear the thought of her parents being ashamed of her or disappointing them. But once you tank that GPA, girl. No, that's what I'm saying. Colleges only look at your last two years of high school in Canada. You still your GPA, though. Like your No, they last only look GPA. at your last two years. Your but freshman and sophomore. Build? No, they're only looking so at the last two years. resets every mm-hmm. time? That's I guess your freshman and sophomore years don't go into that GPA. Apparently, they just don't count. She said most of this feeling came from Han, her dad, this feeling of she didn't want them being ashamed of her or disappointing them. She said her mom was more supportive and that all she wanted was for her to do her best. She said lying to her mom hurt the most and she felt disgusted with herself. But her lies seemed like the only solution to a desperate situation. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to condone it, but (laughs) I feel like you're in a bit of a pickle. (laughs) Right. When she handed over her report card to her dad, she was so nervous. Her palms were sweating. Her stomach was aching. Her dad scanned the report card up and down. But finally, he looked up and smiled. He believed her. Is that even how grades are done anymore? Like, now aren't parents just logging in? I mean, there's no hope. But this was 20. Parents just logging into a portal. No, you cannot. Yeah, no fudging it anymore. Gone are the days. It's all online. (laughs) Yep. She felt really guilty, but she thought she'd only have to do it with one or two report cards. Despite her seemingly good grades, her parents continued to be very strict with what they allowed Jennifer to do. They picked her up from school every day. They didn't let her date. She wasn't allowed to go to school dances or parties. Nothing that might distract her from her academics or would be considered unproductive. She wasn't even allowed to wear makeup to hide her acne. Pluck her eyebrows, which might have been a favor. (laughs) Oh, no. Or dye her hair. The only times that they didn't have complete control over her life was while she was at school. In 11th grade, Jennifer met Daniel Wong, a person who would end up changing the course of her entire family's lives forever. Oh, no. He was a year older than her, and he had this big personality. He was really friendly and outgoing and goofy. He had a wide smile and a great laugh. They knew each other through the school band. He played the trumpet, and they were just friends until a band trip to Europe in 2003 that her parents actually let her go on. Was it a charter bus? They were in Europe. There was a one night where they had just performed and the concert hall was full of smokers and the smoke triggered an asthma attack in Jennifer and she started panicking. 
The attack made her almost black out. But Daniel was there to get her out of the concert hall. He calmed her down. He got her to breathe. And she said he pretty much saved her life, and it meant everything to her. So by that summer, they were secretly dating. Oh, secretly dating. Mm -hmm. Not only was Jennifer not allowed to have a boyfriend, but this boy in particular was someone her parents definitely would not have approved of. He seemed to be living a double life as well, like Jennifer. Halfway through his senior year at Mary Ward, he had to transfer to an art school in North York because he was falling behind at Mary Ward. He was also a drug dealer. Oh, okay. <laughs> this, is where the st- <laughs> this is where the stories diverge. And he had a drug trafficking charge because cops had found half a pound of weed in his car. But he half was a pound. He was also described as sweet and gentle, a true gentleman because he'd been raised by women. Jennifer could share her problems with him, and he'd listen and never make her feel needy. It allowed her a space to be vulnerable, one something that she didn't really have anywhere else with anyone else. She constantly felt unappreciated in her life, and Daniel made her feel heard and safe, and he accepted her unconditionally. And nothing, nothing like young romance budding in a band hall. Let me tell you, it's, <laughs> it smells bad. There's lots of... God. Mm-hmm. Sometime during Jennifer's senior year, her parents actually met Daniel. Her mom had seen her with him at the mall one time and knew that he'd have to be introduced to Han. Jennifer planned this whole Christmas party with some friends so they could meet in a less intimidating setting. But immediately, Han disapproved of Daniel. No one is yeah. sure of exactly why, if it was a, maybe a little bit of racism because Daniel was half Chinese and half Filipino, so he was mixed. Or if it was because he'd caught wind of Daniel's past as a drug dealer, that was definitely or possible. Or it's because it's a boy dating your daughter in high school and you're the dad. I think that's Or it's because you'd it. ordered your daughter not to date and she is dating him. Either way, Han ordered Jennifer to break it off with him, which obviously was not going to happen. It only forced Jennifer deeper into her lies. Jennifer had started raising her grades from a 70 average to mostly B's. But mostly B's was still unacceptable to her parents, so she kept on forging report cards to show A's. She even got an early acceptance to Ryerson University, but then she failed calculus her senior year, which kept her from graduating, and Ryerson Mm. withdrew their offer. Wait, you can't just jump to that. We were like in freshman year, so now she's a senior, and now she's- Well, we were in junior year. That's when her junior year was when she met Daniel. Yeah. But, well, how did her parents find out that she couldn't graduate? Uh, her parents did not find out. Jennifer started to panic. Her parents could not see that she wasn't going to Ryerson. Then they'd look into her high school records. They'd see she wasn't graduating and also that she'd been fudging her report cards for the last four years. I'm sweating. So she lied. Is this the, is this the true crime? <laughs> I'm part stressed. Of it. Definitely part of it. Well, you, are, you heard the true crime. You know, now this is, yeah. this is the path that gets us there. This would be the biggest lie yet, and one she'd later say that she wishes she could take back. She let her parents continue to think that she was going to Ryerson University. She said she wanted to do two years of science and then transfer to the University of Toronto to do their pharmacology program. Jennifer had wanted to pursue music as a career. Her dream for her life was to be a piano teacher. But her father's dream was for her to go into the medical field. And so, of course, she did what he wanted her to do. Or at least she said she she was doing what he wanted her to do. Right. Han was so excited about it, he bought her a new top-of-the-line 
$2,700 laptop. Jennifer went through all the motions of a college student. She bought biology and physics textbooks. She bought school supplies. She's not even there. Like, she's not going. No. But she's she buying the textbooks. She didn't have, like, a backup? Like, she didn't even, like, enroll in, like, a community she college? She hasn't like- graduated high school. But it, it, time to graduate's already passed. Like, she missed that? Yeah. Like, she failed calculus. She couldn't graduate. And so now she's going to fake going to college. Is she going to, like, go to summer school? She – no. She didn't go to summer school. And I don't know why <sighs> unless it was just because then her parents would find out. But, like – if they didn't find out all of this, they weren't going to find out she was taking calculus to graduate. So I'm not sure why. Yeah. Drive think, to the university and make a U-turn and go back to your high school and take your summer school, girl. No. When the semester started, she pretended to attend the freshman orientation week. She photoshopped oh documents that said she'd gotten like loans and a $3,000 scholarship to pay for it all so that her parents didn't think they needed to pay for any of it. Every day, she'd pack up her books and head out the door pretending to go to class, but instead she'd go to public libraries and start researching whatever she was supposed to be studying in class so that she could fill notebooks with notes on the subject in case her parents ever looked in her backpack or in case her dad ever wanted to have a conversation with her about her physics class. Oh my God. Yeah. When she wasn't at the library studying for classes she wasn't taking... (laughs) She'd go to cafes or visit Daniel at his school, and she would use her lies about her activities. No, you got other things <laughs> you need to be doing. She doesn't want to take that calculus class, Mogab. She's over calculus, apparently. I mean, at that point, just fake your diploma. Like, just Photoshop your diploma. What, the college diploma? Well, she can't get no, out. No, well, yes, that too, but your high school diploma. I don't think you, but, uh, tricking your parents. Or transcript or whatever. Tricking your parents is a lot different than tricking colleges with a diploma. <laughs> you better figure it out. So she would use her lies about her activities as a way to get out of the house and see Daniel. But if she couldn't escape, then she'd sneak Daniel into her room. She got a job as a server at a restaurant. She taught piano. And then later got a job as a bartender at the pizza place Daniel had started working at as a kitchen manager. No. Her dad would ask her questions all the time about her classes, but Bick would tell him to back off, you know, to let her be herself. Jennifer's lies didn't stop with her parents. Like any good little liar, she knew that the easiest way to get caught was to have multiple stories going. So she told her friends the same thing that she'd told her parents. Nobody knew she hadn't graduated high school, except maybe Daniel. She also started exaggerating about how controlling her dad was, going so far as to tell them at one point that he'd hired a private investigator that had been following her around. And now, I think it was the article that said- That's made up. Well, I think it was the article that said that that was an exaggeration, because I'm pretty sure then I read in the book that maybe he did hire a private investigator a little later on. Not not right now in the story, but... Well, it seems a little warranted right now, I'm just gonna say. Uh, agreed. And it will get even more warranted later on. This lie went on for two years, at which time it was time <sighs> for her to fake transfer to the University of Toronto to fake enroll in their pharmacology program, like she said. What did she think was going to be the end goal, especially if she wasn't going to actually graduate high school? I don't think she was looking that far ahead. I have no idea. I don't know how you can't. I agree. I think she just kept thinking that 
She's in so deep right now. She'll figure out how to fix it. I don't know. Just take that calculus class, girl. Her parents were thrilled that she was going to the University of Toronto. This is like the top university in all of Canada, according to Google. If you Google Canada top university, University of Toronto is the one that pops up. Mm. Jennifer started to complain about the commute to the University of Toronto, and she threw out the idea of staying with her best friend Topaz three nights a week so she'd be closer to school. You'd get yeah, her out of the house a little bit. Me. Topaz was someone- Is that her, a real human? To, it, it is, and she was someone that her parents had always approved of, and so Bick convinced Han to let Jennifer go. And this I totally don't understand, and I probably never will, and we'll talk about it a lot. It might just be because this is not my culture. Her culture is not my culture. But I just don't totally understand why Jennifer didn't just move out. Like, she's an adult at this time. She's her, Oh, I definitely think that's a culture thing. Her parents weren't sure. paying for her school. She had several jobs. I'm still trying to figure out how she told her parents, like, there's no graduation ceremony. Like, her parents weren't concerned, like, why don't we get to watch you walk across the stage? For high school? That seems like... So, I have the explanation for her college graduation. Oh, good. I don't know what she told them about high school, but she came up with something, I'm sure. Of course, when Jennifer said she was staying with her friend Topaz, she actually meant her boyfriend, Daniel. <gasps> oh, no. Daniel was living with his parents in Ajax, which was the town next to Scarborough. And Monday through Wednesday, Jennifer started staying with him there. His parents were under the impression that her parents had approved of this whole situation. Oh, come on. You know better than that. Well, and they they didn't. They thought Jennifer was such a good girl. They thought she was such a good influence on her son. They loved Jennifer. And they wanted to meet her parents. But Jennifer got really good at making up excuses on why they couldn't meet or just avoiding answering the question altogether. So when she fake transferred over to the University of Toronto, she had to make it look like she was taking steps to further her fake career in pharmacology. So she told her Obviously. parents that she'd started volunteering at the blood testing lab at Sick Kids, which is the hospital for sick children. It's like one word, Sick Kids. Don't bring sick kids into this. <laughs> right, Jennifer? Don't bring the sick kids into your lies. This is the hospital for sick children that's affiliated with the University of Toronto. It's Canada's most research-intensive hospital and the largest center dedicated to improving children's health. It kind of sounds like Canada's version of St. Jude's. Jude's, mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, she told her parents that she was volunteering there and that they needed her for the late night shifts on Fridays and Saturdays. <laughs> she's volunteering with the sick children. On Saturday night. On Friday and Saturday nights. That's what she's doing. She asked her parents if she could spend more of the week at her friend Topaz's so she could be closer to the hospital, and they agreed. Hmm. Two years later, it's time for Jennifer to fake graduate from the University I of Toronto. I cannot believe this has gone on that long. That can't be true. Like, that cannot be true. I know. You're talking an eight-year-long lie at this point, because it all started her freshman year of high school, you know, when she started forging and, like, those report cards. I don't believe that you just, like, all of a sudden can be, like, that high achieving and then you just, like, don't know the information. Like, sure, you're not applying yourself, but if you tried, I bet you could have passed calculus. Like, I feel well, like Well, and you math was her best subject. It was something she was always naturally good at. So I think that maybe she just had to work at math and she couldn't. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's why I failed English my, fr my senior year because yeah. it was something I'd always been good at. I'd never had to try. And now I'm put into my first, like, college-level class because it was a dual-credit class. It was, like, 
taught yeah. by a college professor that would come to our campus. And I had to apply myself. And that was right. really difficult for me to figure out how to apply myself in a class I'd, are, I'd always been just naturally good at. And so I'm sure that's what got her with calculus is like, I, this is math. But, I should not have to try this hard for math. Yes. But then now she's trying really hard right, to keep I mean, all this going. I Yes. And I just know. the stress of it all. And like, mm. yeah. No but way. I guess just telling the truth was not an option at this point. Like, what's she, well, she going to do? Well, at this point, no, it's like, definitely not. So far in. This to me is comparable to the zombies. You know how we would just like walk out and let the zombies get us like yes. immediately? Yep. Like, that's where she's at. Like, there's no going back. Like, you just got to commit. I, I just. Right. You just got to commit. She could have. She could have. So it's time for Jennifer to fake graduate from the University of Toronto, where she had never attended because she'd not even managed to graduate high school. She's like not even in there, you know? Right. Jennifer's report card faking skills had gotten her pretty far. But she did not have the skills to forge an entire college transcript with like embossed seals and all of that. So she and Daniel found someone online to do it for them and paid paid this guy online oh. to forge these transcripts. Jennifer is 22 at this point, And in her article, Karen Ho said, at this point in her life, Jennifer has never gone to a club. She's never been drunk. She's never been on vacation without her family. I mean, she her life experiences are just not like what you would expect of a average 22-year-old. Uh-huh. Bick and Han were so excited that their daughter was graduating college and from the University of Toronto, no less. You know, the top university. And I'm sure with honors, Canada. if you're forging it, you might as well put like magnum cum laude on there. Sure, whatever. Of course. They couldn't wait to watch their daughter walk across that stage and <laughs> get her diploma. Oh my God, tell me everything. But this was obviously never going to happen. So Jennifer told them that her class was just so big that each student was only given one ticket to graduation. <laughs> she didn't want either parent to feel left out, so she'd just given the ticket to a friend. Sorry, Mom and Dad, you can't come. <laughs> That's a terrible lie. I would have come up with something else. It worked. I agree. It's a pretty awful lie. Yeah. I, I'm surprised that Han wasn't, like, calling the school and, like, give me another ticket, you know? Yeah. Jennifer said that when she looked at herself and what she'd done and what she was continuing to do... She did not like herself. She was not acting like the person that she wanted to be. But at this point, it was almost like it was too late to turn back now. If she didn't keep up the charade. Charade. <laughs> if she didn't keep up the charade, if she just totally came charade. clean. God she would lose everything that ever meant anything to her. She couldn't. But her lies were bound to unravel sooner or later. And her father, Han, wasn't totally oblivious. He told Jennifer that instead of her staying with Topaz, he and Bick would drop her off for her next volunteer shift down at the hospital. She tried to tell them they didn't need to do that. She could just take public transportation. It's fine. It wasn't a big deal. But Han insisted. The next day, Han and Bick dropped her off at the hospital. As soon as Jennifer was inside, Han told Bick to follow her. Oh, Mm -hmm. Han on the case. Han on the case. Jennifer saw her mom come into the hospital and she ducked inside of the ER waiting room and just hid in there until her mom left. Han was very suspicious. Early the next morning, he called Topaz and demanded to speak to Jennifer. But Topaz, like, forgot in her grogginess of the morning that she was, like, Jennifer's cover and she told them that Jennifer oh, wasn't yeah. there. 
When she finally came home, Han confronted her. He asked her what was going on, and Jennifer couldn't keep it up anymore. She told him everything. Well, what? Almost everything. She told him that she didn't volunteer at Sick Kids. And she told them that she'd been staying with Daniel when they thought she was with Topaz. She's going to leave out the college part, though. That seems pretty, uh... Right. But no, Jennifer continued to let her parents believe that she'd graduated high school. She'd gone to Ryerson University for those first two years. But she said she had lied about going to the University of Toronto. She'd been taking correspondence classes through the University of Toronto. Okay. Even then, her parents were horrified and more angry at Jennifer than they'd ever been. Bick burst into tears at the news, and Han tried to kick Jennifer out of the house. He told her she had two options, to stay home and go to school, or to go with Danny Wong and to never come back. Those were her options. Well, she's going to go with Danny Wong and never come back. No, she's not. This is what I'm saying. I don't understand why she is not leaving. She's probably feeling a lot of guilt. Yeah, I think so. They took her cell phone, her laptop for two weeks, and when they gave them back to her, she was only allowed to use them if they were there to monitor her, and she had to allow them to search her messages anytime they wanted. They told her she could- She's 24. She's 24. Yes, 24. I was living in Singapore at this point. They told her she could never see Daniel again and that the only job she could keep was teaching piano. They started tracking the mileage in her car. Sorry, she's 22 at this. She's, this is a 22-year-old. Oh. They're grounding a 22-year-old from their phone and laptop for two weeks and saying she can't see her boyfriend. And Jennifer just goes along with it. And they don't even know the worst part of the lie. Right. Yeah. They don't even know that, yes, she didn't even graduate high school. They think that she still graduated from U of T, which is University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. In February of 2009, she wrote on her Facebook page, living in my house is like living under house arrest. And yeah, basically, she is under house arrest. Criminals out on bail often have more freedom than Jennifer's parents were giving her. Over the next several months, she continued to sneak calls to Daniel. She was madly in love with him. And there was no way she was giving up that relationship. I mean, they have been together now since her junior year of high school. Like, this is a six-year relationship at this point. She was also lonely, despite her mom's constant hovering. The only freedom outside of the house Jennifer had for a while was when she left to teach her piano lessons. She'd take advantage of the freedom by sneaking visits to Daniel in between her lessons. One night, she decided to get real bold, and she, like, did the thing where she arranged her pillows and her blankets to, like, look like she was Uh, sleeping in bed, you know? Never done that. She snuck out of the house. But she forgot that she had her mom's wallet with her. So when Uh, her mom went to Jennifer's room the next morning to get her wallet back, she saw Jennifer was missing. Her parents called her and told her she needed to get home now. And at she this, said she didn't have her cell phone. Right. And at this point, a few years have gone by. She is 24 at this point. And to Daniel, this whole secret romance thing had been fun in the beginning, like seven years ago. But they were both adults now, and he's getting a little tired of it. Yeah, like, I'm sure he doesn't have to. Well, I mean, his parents. His parents uh, love her. Yes. Yeah. Jennifer's next lie would be the breaking point of the entire family. She wanted to be back in their good graces. She wanted them to be proud of her. So she told them that she'd gotten a job as a pharmacy tech in a Walmart, working in the back, packing and labeling medications. 
I'm sorry, that's what she went for? I mean, now the sky is the limit. She could say anything. Well, her dad wanted her to be a pharmacist. That's what she got her fake degree in. But be like, I'm the pharmacist for all of the astronauts at NASA. <laughs> or I am the pharmacist for all of the professors at Harvard She was Law. trying to go for I mean, something anything. they would believe. <laughs> but Han, Han was on to her lies at this point. He thought it was weird that she didn't have a uniform or a swipe card for the pharmacy. So he told Jennifer he wanted to see her pay slips. She forged a copy of them and brought them to him. But he wanted to see the money in the account from the Walmart. Oh, get it, Han. And it wasn't there. She finally broke down and told him, again, some of the truth. That she hadn't graduated from U of T. But she still didn't let him know that she hadn't even graduated high school. And he would continue to believe that she'd done those two years at Ryerson. He would never believe another word that came out of her mouth, though, after this. The trust was completely broken. That's so sad. After all of this. For what? I know. Because you didn't want to tell him you failed calculus seven years ago, six years ago? Yeah. After all of this, Jennifer became a – and I know I'm saying that glibly. I know it's more than just failing calculus. Like, academics is, like, the only thing that mattered to them. Like, I get that it wasn't the same as me Oh, it would have been the – Biggest disappointment of everyone's life at yes, that time. Yeah. But now we've like just blown that out of Right. The water. But now look at where you are because like you just couldn't suck it up and tell them. I don't know. Like face the disappointment. Well, if she had faced the disappointment then, mm-hmm. she wouldn't she be in this. And yeah. And they would have put her in calculus. It would have made her retake that class and graduate. And then she would be in mm-hmm. college, you know, probably still doing what he wanted her to do and not what she wanted to do. But She wouldn't be dealing with this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. After all of this, Jennifer became a prisoner in her home. Han forced her to write an email to Daniel, breaking things off with him, and then they applied to three colleges. And there are just some things that I don't understand here because Han said that he did not know that she hadn't graduated from Ryerson until, like, way later. Like after Bick died, he didn't know until mm-hmm. after Bick was murdered that she had never graduated Ryerson. But Which then means Bick doesn't know. Right. But then it said that they got her to retake the calculus class and they're applying to these three colleges and that she was even accepted into a lab technician course at Centennial College. So mm-hmm. I'm not really sure how she was accepted into that without taking that calculus class and then. Another source said that she did take the calculus class, but then I'm like, then he would have known she hadn't done the two years at Ryerson. So there's a lot of details with this part that I'm not really sure. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but I don't know. I don't know that. Jennifer was not allowed to leave the house, and she felt her grip on reality starting to loosen. This happy mask that she'd worn for years in front of everybody was gone. She felt defeated and broken, and she now didn't even have Daniel to get her through it. So he, like, really accepted that breakup email. Nah, no, he really didn't. Not yet. But she felt unwanted, unlovable, unworthy, and she knew there was nothing that she could do to get back in her father's good graces. She was watched constantly. She had a bedtime. She is 24. (laughs) There were surprise checks on her phone. She had no room to even breathe, and the monitoring became too much for her. Her friends became aware of her situation, and all of them started to encourage her to move out. Just leave, Jennifer. Get out. Yeah, I mean, like, 
you could just run away in the night and like get a place and they'd be mad, but. Right. They told her they'd help her find an apartment. Even Daniel begged her to escape what he referred to as her hellhole. He told her she could move in with Uh him. But she told all of them that leaving her house was not an option. Hmm. She later claimed that this was because of her dedication to her family, but she'd also tell friends that she felt like if she left, that would mean cutting ties with her family, and she just wasn't willing to do that. She said she wanted her family to accept her. She wanted to be a part of her family. She didn't want to live alone. She didn't want to be shamed for moving out before she was married, which is the tradition in her culture. But neither she nor Daniel felt ready for marriage either. That's the smartest thing they've done. (laughs) Yeah. But I think this is one of those things where no one will ever understand why she didn't just move out. She had friends she could have stayed with while she got on her feet. She had jobs she could get to support herself. I think she really thought she could turn it around. Yes, but, you know, I guess knowing the whole story, this is the part I have the biggest hang up on. And I think you'll see that as we go of like, why didn't she just move out? It was at this point that Daniel officially broke up with Jennifer. He told her that she needed to figure her situation out and just come find him when she was ready. Jennifer was completely heartbroken. She had no idea how to turn things around, no idea how to figure her situation out. The only option she could think of for a while was suicide. But she also knew she didn't actually want to die. Not if there was still a chance for this life with Daniel where she could actually be happy. And again, I'm like, Jennifer, you could have that right now if you just go get your own apartment. You could have this life with, with Daniel and be fine. He could like come over. Yeah. But I also really don't understand the concept of like a family unit. Like in my culture, it would be more shameful to still be living with your parents at 24. And like no shade to anyone living at home. I moved back in at like 26. I'm just saying it's hard for me to understand like why she wouldn't leave. And our cultures are like, you're 18, get out. And they're like, no, you stay. You know, it's just uh, different. Daniel knew that Jennifer's parents would never accept him and that without that, they would never be able to be together while she was still, you know, wanting to be a part of this unit. So even though she continued to try and talk to him through texts and phone calls, he didn't respond to any of them. And this was really hard for him. They'd been together for seven years at this point. Like she was his best friend. But soon, Jennifer thought she'd figured out the reason why. She discovered that shortly after they broke up, Daniel started dating another girl named Katrina Villanueva. This was a friend of Daniel's from high school who was three years older than him. And in total irony, Daniel's parents did not approve of Katrina because they missed Jennifer, who they say was a positive influence on him. Mm. Jennifer pretended to be okay with Daniel's new relationship, like she's trying to play the cool ex-girlfriend, you know, but inside she's raging with jealousy. And she started thinking, you know, all is fair in love and war. So she started trying to sabotage the relationship. And it's kind of this part of the story where Jennifer's decision making starts appearing much more, I don't want to use the word psychotic. Mm. devolving, destructive, more so than just covering up lies. Mm -hmm. Like she's actually harming people. Well, more so than like disappointing them. Yeah. And I wouldn't even say harming. I would say 
she's always been manipulative. I mean, she's been manipulating everybody yeah. since ninth grade. But it gets a little bit more Jody Arias, I guess we could say, coming up here. She kind of felt like th- sabotaging this relationship. This was something to focus on now besides her home life, where she's now being yeah. given the silent treatment by her dad. Like once she even tried to bring out drinks to her dad and her brother while they were in the garage working on cars, something that Jennifer also enjoyed doing and was kind of put out that they hadn't asked her to join them. But Big had this idea, like, bring them drinks. It can be an icebreaker, you know. But they just completely ignored her. They turned their backs on her. And it made her feel like no Mm. one needed her or wanted her around. Now, while this is going on, Daniel starts getting up to 100 phone calls every night, all saying they're Mm. from a private number. If he answered, the caller would just hang up. He always suspected that these calls were from Jennifer. But he also started getting texts telling him to stop talking to Jennifer and just focus on Katrina. Messages like as if the person is trying to convince him, the person obviously being Jennifer, is trying to convince him that these texts are coming from Katrina. They were messages like, like... That wouldn't even make any sense, especially if he's actually not talking to Jennifer. Right. Well, I guess they kind of had started talking again, like after a little while. These were messages like, you don't need her. You're better off without her. Don't be with her. Be with Katrina. Stuff like that. Both Jennifer and Katrina start also started receiving messages that, that were more threatening that said things like, be careful where you go. Daniel took these messages really seriously, but Katrina just thought they were annoying. Jennifer was getting messages that said things like, why would he want to be with you? You're stupid. You look like a man and you're ugly. Oh. Jennifer tried to blame Katrina for all of these messages, but Katrina denied it, of course, because they're coming from Jennifer. (laughs) Meanwhile, Jennifer's behavior grew more and more erratic. She made a suicide attempt. She started self-harming again. Her sleeping patterns were really bad. She was spiraling. In the spring of 2010, Jennifer decided she needed male attention to get over Daniel. She started spending a lot of time on social media, chatting with guys, and soon she reconnected with a guy named Andrew Monomayer. They'd known each other since elementary school, but they hadn't spoken since. Jennifer said after they reconnected, Andrew was constantly bragging about robbing people at knife point and committing home robberies. That's when you're like, you know what? I don't really feel like I knew what I was getting myself into in this friendship, so I'm just going to. Instead, she saw him as like her bad boy replacement of Daniel. She started confiding in Andrew about how things were going with her dad, how much she just couldn't stand it. And according to Jennifer, Andrew told her he thought about killing his own father at one point. Jennifer started thinking how much better her life would be if her dad wasn't around. Andrew and Jennifer went out for some bubble tea and (gasps) (laughs) I know (laughs) I knew I had to put that detail in there and Andrew gave her a few ideas on how to deal with her dad he said she could run away or pretend to get kidnapped I bet Andrew has a shit order at the bubble tea place (laughs) I just know it what would a shit bubble tea order be Like, just, like, so extra, you know? Oh. Like, give me extra bubbles. Like, okay. Oh. Yeah. Or he probably gets, like, the red bean in it. That's gross. Ew. I don't know. He said she could run away or pretend to get kidnapped, but she refused because she didn't want to leave her mom. 
she said. Andrew's third idea was to kill him. Andrew, int- and again, according to Jennifer, Andrew introduced her to his roommate, a guy named Ricardo Duncan, who went by Rick. See the short one with the dreadlocks? <laughs> no, different guys, actually. He said Rick could probably help with the murder. Rick told Jennifer it would cost $1,300, which seems like such a specific amount. Yeah. And he told her that he'd have to find a gun somehow. They're in Canada, if you've forgotten. It's not the U.S. Yes. She gave Rick- Somehow. How difficult. (laughs) More difficult than here. She gave Rick $1,300 that she'd earned teaching piano, and they worked out a plan. Jennifer said she wanted her dad to be alone when it happened. So the plan was to go to his work and shoot him in the parking lot. (gasps) Jennifer gave Andrew and Rick a Google map of of Han's workplace and the area surrounding it. But they couldn't confirm a date or time because Rick still hadn't managed to get a gun. By July, Rick had stopped. (laughs) That's crazy to me. I mean, good. Good for you, Canada. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. By July, Rick had stopped answering her calls completely, and Jennifer went hysterical. She called him, screaming at him to come and kill her parents, and he said no. Rick's story, his version of events, is also slightly different than Jennifer's. He says that the only money she ever gave him was $200 for a night out, which he returned to her. He says that Jennifer assumed he would do this for her because he's black. Oh. Through all of this, Daniel and Jennifer had started talking more and more, and she'd started sneaking out of the house to go see him. They started sending sexy pictures, and she would send him, like... So, is he single again? No. We don't know. He's still with Katrina. So... But she's sending him very, like, risque pictures at his request. And then Daniel is still getting these, like, threatening texts from this, you know, private number. But he starts to notice that he never gets them when he's with Jennifer. But as soon as he drops her off, he'll start getting messages about what happened when they were together. Jennifer continued to blame Katrina for the messages. Jennifer, that doesn't even make sense. No, and then she told her most bizarre story to this point. She told Daniel that she'd been attacked and gang raped in her house by a Chinese gang. What? She said she'd been jogging, and when she got home, a group of five Asian teenagers forced her into her house and then raped her. She said her mother had taken her to the hospital and a police report had been filed. Daniel was suspicious of the story. Like, he didn't want to accuse her of lying to him about this, but he asked her if she had proof that she'd been in the hospital, like her hospital bracelet or something, you know? But she Mm -hmm. just kept making excuses about why she didn't have it. Oh, my mom cut it off. She threw it away, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, Daniel decided to believe her because of their history and because of the emotion in her voice when she talked about the incident. Like, it sounded like somebody that had been through this. Well, and you're thinking, why would someone make it up? But then again. (laughs) Right. But he never did see any actual proof of this. We could say that this is proof that Jennifer is really good at conjuring up emotions at the drop of a hat to manipulate the people that loved her. After this, on August 3rd, Daniel gave Jennifer a second phone, an iPhone that her parents didn't know about so that he'd be able to contact her all the time to make sure that she was okay after this whole thing had happened. On August 16th, Jennifer called Daniel at 1.21 a.m. This call lasted for five hours. (sighs) They're falling asleep on the phone. That's what that is. Well, 
That's not what the police think. The police theorize that it was during this phone call that Jennifer first presented her idea for the murder to Daniel. She told him that they should hire hitmen to break into her home, tie her up, and tear up the house to make it look like a home invasion gone wrong. The men would then kill her parents like they'd gotten enraged at finding no money in the house. She figured the whole thing would take less than 30 minutes. The only witness left would be Jennifer. And after they left, she'd call 911 to report the robbery. So she said both of her parents, not just her dad. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have a lot of thoughts on that that I will say later. The hitmen would wear gloves and hats to make sure DNA wasn't left behind. She'd destroy the SIM card on the phone Daniel had given her on the iPhone, the one with all the evidence of the plan on it. So the only person who would really know what had happened would be Jennifer. That's never how that works. Well, and I'm like, what about the SIM cards on all the phones you're contacting? What about those phones? And also, because now all of these people know what happened. Right. And also, <laughs> we're telling right unbeknownst now. to Jennifer, iPhones also store messages and calls on the phone itself, not just on the SIM card. So yeah, you need to be of, deleting like, them didn't... off of there. <laughs> and even then, kind I don't of... know if they can recover them. They might be able to. I forgot about SIM cards. Like, I guess they're inside our iPhones. But do you remember like on the flip mm-hmm. phone, you like pop out the batteries behind the back? Yeah. The only reason I even know, because I insisted, I was like, iPhones don't have SIM cards. And they're like, yes, they do. And like, I've seen mine now, so I know they do because I switched providers. Then Jennifer could collect her portion of her parents' estate, which would total about $500,000. And then she and Daniel could live together without her parents. I'm not sure if Daniel pointed out that they could live together right now without a double murder. But for whatever incomprehensible reason, Jennifer decided the only way out was murder. And this is why I was talking about how confused I was that she wouldn't just move out. I'm like, you would rather kill your parents than disappoint them or bring shame upon them by moving out of the house and living your own life. You would rather that they be dead. And I do not understand that. To me, that is... That's a good thing. That I don't don't understand. understand. Yeah. 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 Over the next two days after that five-hour phone call, Jennifer was constantly calling and texting Daniel. She wanted the number of a friend of his, a man named Lenford Crawford, a.k.a. Homeboy. Oh, well, of course, with a name like Lenford Crawford, you have to go back. (laughs) Homeboy. She called and texted Daniel 40 times after she'd gotten off the phone with him on the 16th. The next day, she called and texted him 100 times between 1 a.m. and 11.30 p.m., The calls were from the iPhone, her flip phone, and her home phone. So she's (gasps) calling him from all phones. On August 18th, she sent four texts and called him 15 times, but the calls all went to voicemail. The next day, she sent five texts, called him 17 times, again, all going to voicemail. This is so unhealthy. I mean, minus the murder part, but just the... Mm -hmm. In the next 35 minutes after those 17 calls... She called 12 more times. Finally, Daniel answered her call at 8.47 a.m. on the 18th, and Jennifer finally got what she wanted. She spoke with Homeboy at 11.09 a.m., and they spoke for four and a half minutes. During this call, Homeboy said he usually charged $20,000 for a murder, but because she was a friend of Daniel's, she's on the friends and family discount plan, he'd do it for $10,000. Oh, Which a lot of people, I think, say that does not seem like enough 
to murder somebody, but an investigator. But if you already want it done, like if you already. No, homeboy is think- charging 10000 Oh. An investigator in Toronto said he's seen hits carried out for as little as $500. So $10,000 is apparently a decent price. The key point of this whole plot was that Jennifer had no direct links to any of the men that would end up carrying out this murder. Except for, of course, this four and a half minute phone call here to Homeboy. Because if she didn't know them, she couldn't rat them out. She'd only spoken with Homeboy a handful of times and only on the iPhone, whose SIM card she planned to destroy. But it's also on his phone, girl. And he would recruit and coordinate the others that would become involved. And Jennifer would have no idea who they were. So for their parts, Homeboy and Daniel planned to have pretty solid alibis for the night of the murder. But then on November 2nd, Daniel texted Jennifer and told her that he felt as strongly for Katrina as Jennifer felt for him. Oh. It seems like he's kind of trying to back out of this whole arrangement. So Jennifer said, so you feel for her what I feel for you, then call it off with homeboy. And Daniel said, I thought you wanted this for you. Jennifer said she did, but she had nowhere to go now. And Daniel said that Jennifer had said she wanted this with or without him, and then said, I did everything, and I lined it all up for you. Huh. But within a couple of hours, they were back to texting and flirting as usual. So Ugh. this was weird. This was weird. It is weird, but it is also Daniel being like, yes, I am very much involved in this whole murder plot to kill your parents. Which I don't understand why somebody like Daniel would like. Yeah, Throw he like dealt weed, but it wasn't like he was a murderer, you know? Yeah. Like, <sighs> I don't know why he got, especially if he, I don't know. I was going to say, especially if he's with this other girl that, I don't know. I just don't know why you get involved in something like this. You know? No. And, and you know, I think, okay, they were together for seven years. And but isn't she getting on your nerves? Like all those Isn't phone she calls, getting on your them? nerves? Like, I, yes, I would think so. Apparently not. Apparently he's willing to arrange this murder for her. Homeboy texted Jennifer that he needed a date, but like a date for the murder, not like a date. Like he needed to know what day. <laughs> he she needed to bring this. a date to the murder. <laughs> he needed to know what day this was going to come down. You know who would never? Hmm. Trailer Terry would never. Trailer Terry would never. What episode was that even on? Who was that even about? Uh, the Texas Cheerleader. Oh, the Texas Cheerleader. That's right. That's right. I yeah. think about Trailer yeah. Terry way too often. Really? Just how he, like, made the good choice? Yeah. yeah. He would have mm-hmm. been like, no, I am not. Well, but we hit. got Ricardo. We got Rick Rick Duncan over here. That <laughs> Ricky say. Ricardo? Is that what you're going to say? No, Rick, I was trying to remember his last name. I think it was Duncan. Rick Duncan, mm-hmm. who said no. I don't know who that man is. Well, he's the one that I, I talked about that. Oh, in this story. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus. Who is that man that you told me about seven paragraphs ago? (laughs) Jennifer. So homeboy's asking her, when is this going to go down? And Jennifer tells him not that day because she has dinner plans and wouldn't be home in time. Which to me sounds like a much better place. Like, I don't understand why she thought needing to be home while this was happening had to be part of this plan. But over the next week, texts were flying between Jennifer, Daniel and homeboy. 
On the morning of November 8th, Homeboy texted Jennifer saying, after work, okay, will be game time. These idiots couldn't even come up with good code words. Game time. That night, since this is 2010, Jennifer watched an episode of Gossip Girl and then John and Kate Ugh. plus eight in her bedroom while Han read the Vietnamese She news. has a TV in there. I'm surprised. Um, honestly, now that you mention it, I am as well. Maybe she got it in her adulthood. 24, they think she can have a TV now. I don't know. Han read the Vietnamese news down the hall from her. He headed for bed around 8.30. Bic was still out line dancing with her friend. By this time, Felix was in college, so he was away at McMaster University, so he wasn't home. Around 9.30, Bic came home from line dancing, and she got into her green, silky Winnie the Pooh pajamas and went to soak her feet in front of the TV on the main floor. Five minutes later, a friend of homeboys named David Milvaganam, we will call him David, a friend of homeboys named David called Jennifer and they spoke for two minutes. Jennifer then went downstairs to say goodnight to Bic and she unlocked the front door. At 10.02, she was upstairs. She flipped the light on in the study upstairs and one minute later switched it off. This was the signal. Oh my gosh. A minute after that, another call came in from David that lasted three and a half minutes. Moments after that call ended, homeboy David and a third man named Eric Carty walked in through the front door, all of them carrying guns. <sighs> Eric Carty went upstairs and found Jennifer. They went into her room where she handed over $2,500 in cash for the hit. And then they went to her parents' bedroom where he found a little over $1,000 in Bix's nightstand. Then they went downstairs to search the kitchen for Bic's wallet while Homeboy and David were in the living room screaming at Han and Bic about money. When Bic started begging them not to hurt her daughter, one of them responded, Rest assured, she is nice and will not be hurt. Hmm. That's weird. Well, you know, not when they're working for her. Well, no, I know, but it's like weird that he would say that if it's supposed to be. Right. I know. It's weird. Then Eric and Jennifer went back upstairs where he tied her arms to the banister while David and Homeboy are taking Han and Bick down to the basement. They shoot them, the three men run out the door, and Han somehow makes his way out the front door while Jennifer calls 911, summoning up fake feelings of panic and horror, using everything she knew about manipulation, things she'd learned over the past 10 years as she'd built her web of lies to put on the performance of her life. But November 12th, Han woke up from a three-day induced coma. He had a broken mm. bone near his eye, bullet fragments permanently lodged in his face, and a shattered neck bone. But miraculously, he would survive. <gasps> yes. And even more miraculously, he remembered everything. And one thing he remembered was seeing Jennifer chatting softly with one of the intruders in the kitchen, as oh. if she was talking to a friend. By this time, police were already on to Jennifer. There were too many things that seemed odd. They discovered all of the lies that Jennifer had been running about her past, her rocky relationship with her parents, all of it. They called her in for a third interview on November 22nd, and this one was very different than the first two. The okay, and the, the shooting happened the 8th or the 9th? 
It was the night of the 8th. The wee hours of the morning were the 9th. But then the wee hours of the morning of the 10th is when I don't even feel bad the police took her from the hospital now to interview Mm -hmm. her. Right. (laughs) The detective, William Getz, told Jennifer straight up that he knew she was involved in this whole thing. He told her it was in her best interest to fess up. And Jennifer started sobbing and repeatedly asking, but what happens to me? Oh, good. I was wondering how we got all this information. Like, I knew that she, like, would confess or whatever, but I was wondering how well, hard it was. Obviously no, she doesn't ever confess, really. Oh. Her first story was completely absurd. She told the detectives that it had been a suicide plan gone wrong. She had meant for Homeboy to kill her because she couldn't manage to do it herself. But in September, she'd found a reason to live again. Her relationship with her father had magically improved, and she wanted to call off the hit. But she must not have been very clear, and Homeboy thought she meant to kill her parents instead, which she Mm. absolutely had not meant, obviously. We should have known she couldn't craft a story after the graduation ticket. Yes, exactly. Police arrested her on the spot. By the spring, police had combed through all of Jennifer's cell phone, calls, and texts, and they had enough evidence to arrest Daniel Wong, David Milvingham, Eric Carty, and homeboy Lenford Crawford. All five, hmm. including Jennifer, were charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Oh, wow. Jennifer's trial began on March 19th, 2014. They figured it would take about six months, but it ended up lasting for nearly 10 months. They had 50 witnesses testify, and they introduced more than 200 exhibits. Jennifer testified for seven days, trying to explain away all the texts between Homeboy and Daniel and the calls with David. Her story on trial was that she had ordered a hit on her father in August of 2010, but by November, she'd wanted out of it, and it had all gotten out of control. So that's the story that she's trying to tell at trial. She was taking it all back, but it all got out of control. But, like, there's texts that say otherwise. Yeah. I mean, she really thought all she had to do was, like, destroy the SIM card and everything would be fine. But it's like, homeboy had been texting her from his own phone, registered to him in his name. Registered to homeboy. Yeah, to homeboy Lemford Crawford. (laughs) Jennifer was found guilty on all charges. And at the sentencing hearing, Han and Felix both wrote victim impact statements. Han said, when I lost my wife, I lost my daughter at the same time. I don't feel like I have a family anymore. Some say I should feel lucky to be alive, but I feel like I am dead too. He can't work anymore because of his injuries. He has anxiety attacks. He gets nightmares on the rare occasions he's able to sleep. His injuries have caused him to be in constant pain, and all of his hobbies that once brought him joy, gardening, working on, mu- on cars, listening to music, he has since given up. He moved in with relatives nearby because he can't stand to be in that house, a house that he and Bick had worked so hard for and sacrificed so much for. Mm, this is so sad. He was what? desperate to sell it, but no one would buy it. Right. Zillow says the house is off market, so I'm not sure if that means he was eventually able to sell it. This was like five or six years ago. At the end of his statement, Han said, 
I hope my daughter Jennifer thinks about what has happened to her family and can become a good, honest person someday. It ain't happening. Felix got work with a private company firm on the East Coast. Moving away helped him escape the stigma of being Jennifer Pan's little brother. And she received a life sentence for the first-degree murder with no chance of parole for 25 years. For the attempted murder of her father, she got another life sentence to be served concurrently, so I don't even know Mm. why they do that. Daniel, David, and Homeboy all got the same sentence. And the judge banned any communication between Jennifer and her family at her family's request. So she cannot speak to her father or brother again, ever, unless they request it. The five of them will be eligible for parole in 2035. Jennifer will be 49 and Daniel 50. I just looked them up. Well, I don't know that I got the right Daniel, but Jennifer, oh my goodness. Like she looks so young in this like photo. I know. She was young. And she looks like, even at 24, she looks like a teenager. You know, she looks like 16, even when she's 24. There are so many questions about this case and about Jennifer. Like, what was her mental state? Was she dealing with some sort of mental health crisis, mental health disorder? It would definitely make this whole thing easier to understand if she had some sort of chemical imbalance. Because there was an obvious solution to her problem. Like, move out. Live your own life. I I get that there were cultural things going on here, but I'm sure it was also against her culture to hire a hitman to murder her parents. Right. Right? I, um, whatever. I hate this headline. I mean, I guess I shouldn't. Girl, 24, Mm. hired thugs to kill her parents. She's a thug, too. Right. I mean, whatever. Yeah, this is so crazy. The whole time reading this story, I thought for sure that Jennifer would try to back out. I thought for sure she would try to protect her mom. But instead, like I thought for sure, like the night of the murder, Jennifer's going to tell him, no, don't come. And they do it anyway. Like I thought for sure that was going to happen. She was going to. But instead, while her poor mother is sitting in the living room with her feet in a bucket and wearing her green Winnie the Pooh PJs with a gun to her head, Jennifer's walking Eric Cardi around the kitchen like, oh, here's my mom's wallet. Take what you want before you murder them. That I just, like, can't, I can't understand. Uh, what about poor Felix? But that version of events where Eric Cardi comes upstairs while the other two get her parents and she just hands over all the money and, like, walks him oh, around the house. just makes me sick. I don't think I've ever heard of anything more cold. Yeah. I think to a certain point, it's, like, easy to feel sympathy for Jennifer being raised in this kind of environment. And I think if she had not been like the deceptive, manipulative person that she was, she would have a relationship with her dad like Jung and Mr. Kim on on Kim's Convenience. For anyone that watches that show, and everyone should watch that show, I thought about Mr. Kim a lot writing this, actually. He's like this character that I don't usually agree with, and he has really high expectations for his kids. But at the end of the day, it's all done with the goal of helping them be better. But he, like, doesn't have this relationship with his son, and it's really strained. And I think that that's the relationship that Han and and Jennifer probably would have had if she wasn't this manipulative person. But it's like, how is this relationship, in air quotes, better than that would have been? Like, now y'all have no contact. You've literally killed his wife, attempted to kill him. You're never allowed to contact him ever again. You've ruined his life. Like, well, and like, 
there are a lot of people on both sides. Like, I think everybody pretty much agrees Jennifer should not have done what she did. But a lot of people are like, her parents drove her to that. They were like a borderline abusive. It was tyranny what they did. And and yeah, I don't think Han Pan went about parenting the right way. But the correct consequence of that is maybe he doesn't get to have the pleasure of having a relationship with his daughter as an adult. Like, it's not attempting to murder him in cold blood. That's not the consequence for being a bad dad. You know, it's Mm -hmm. my adult kids don't want to talk to me. That's the consequence of that. Yeah. And then they'll probably replace me with some other male role model. Right. I don't even know what to say about the fact that it was Bix life that was taken. Like she was the one that died. And that's what kind of tells me that it wasn't even about wanting more freedom or wanting to be with Daniel or any of that. Because if that was the case, she would have protected her mom. Uh-huh. She would not have let her mom die if all she wanted to do was be with Daniel because with her dad gone, in her mind, like been. with her dad gone, her mom probably wouldn't have stood in her way. Right. So it wasn't about that. The article that I used that I could not tell you the title of was called Jennifer Pan's Revenge, the inside story of a golden child, the killers she hired and the parents she wanted dead. Well, that told me everything in two seconds. Yeah, that would have been the whole story. And the book by Jeremy Grimaldi that I used was called A Daughter's Deadly Deception, the Jennifer Pan Mm. story. And no, I did not read the entire book. (laughs) I skimmed it. The article by Karen Ho was actually really great. So I mostly just used the book to like fact check and fill in some details. There were a lot of details to fill in, though, and most of them did not make it into this episode because I was already teetering on needing to do a two-parter. We're like over two hours right now, and I don't know how much I'm going to be able to keep cut out of this. So definitely go read the book if you want the whole story on Jennifer Pan and the murder of Big Ha Pan and the attempted murder of Han Pan. Well, I know you have still so much work to do, and it's almost 10 o'clock. So let's skip the shout outs for tonight. But I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. We love you all so much. Thank you so much. If you want to find us on social media, we are at Creepers Pod on Instagram, Facebook, sometimes Twitter. We have a great discussion group on Facebook, True Crime Creepers Discussion Group. It's been a lot of fun in there. People post all sorts of stuff. Uh, So come join us in there and uh, join our Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime Creepers. We are having a party. We're having a party over there. We are having a party over there. And you are invited cordially. Go sign up. We're about to record the bonus episode for April. So that'll be dropping the second Monday of April. So also be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers. So you'll have the next episode as soon as it drops when I tell MoGab another wild story. Yeah. And shouts to all the moms and dads out there just doing the best they can. Doing the best they can. Yes. Bye, peeps and creeps. Bye.